Let's now turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, the third chapter, Luke 3. We'll read the first 18 verses. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the weed into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. In connection with our reading of Scripture, let's turn also in our book of forms and prayers to Lord's Day 33. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. What is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for His glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. If you're interested and wish to follow along, I'm also going to be referring to uh, chapter 15 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's like a, a sister confession uh, to our Belgian confession. 
and it is uh, found in the back of our Trinity Psalter hymnal on page 298. I will be referring to this in case you wish to open that up and also be aware of uh, my references to this chapter. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think it's fair to say that uh, the word repentance uh, has an unpleasant and perhaps a harsh ring for most people. Uh, in the minds of uh, many, it may be uh, associated with angry-sounding street preachers railing against the sins of society, or it may be associated with uh, with remorse, uh, and regret for bad behavior or perhaps shame or uh, confessing one's faults to others, feelings of guilt. And these things, they may or they may not be, be features of genuine repentance. I think it's important to realize that, that certainly some of them may be present uh, without genuine repentance at all. Uh, think, think of Ahab when he was taken to task for his, uh, murder of Ahab. He humbled himself and wore sackcloth and walked softly and in a way showed a kind of repentance. And, uh, God acknowledged that to an extent and, uh, uh, spared his life for the time. Or we might think of, of Esau who regretted the sale of his birthright and he, he uh, sought repentance with tears. He was deeply remorseful. Or Judas, he actually confessed his sin very, very explicitly. I have sinned in that I betrayed innocent blood. But in these instances, and others could be cited from Scripture, these expressions of remorse uh, did not involve a true repentance of turning to God. Now, the aim of this uh, message is to make new and more biblical associations in your mind with repentance. Associations of life, associations of, of peace, of freedom, of real change, of joy. The title of Article 15 in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, uh, as I mentioned, is, uh, it's like a sister confession. There is great compatibility of, uh, between the, the Westminster standards and our own three forms of unity. They cover much of the same ground in uh, much of the same way. They are doctrinally, uh, compatible. The Westminster standards are a little bit more elaborate. And that's also true with respect to its teaching on repentance. But you notice that the title of chapter 15 is called Of Repentance Unto life. And that language actually is taken from uh, Scripture. When Peter and uh, the others reported to the church in Jerusalem how the Gentiles had received the gospel, well, the church glorified God and said, well, then God has given to the Gentiles repentance unto life. They rejoiced in their repentance as that which indeed attended True life, the life of salvation. We'll refer to this chapter also uh, throughout the, the message tonight. But in a way also that emphasizes what's clear in our catechism, that uh, repentance is indeed a gift of God. 
repentance is uh, the grace of God manifested. Repentance is turning to God. And it's a turning to God unto salvation. So that's our theme that we're going to consider under the the following points concerning first the necessity of repentance and then the grace of repentance and then the fruit of repentance. And uh, we begin by considering the necessity of repentance. That That is that repentance is something that that all must experience, that something must, that must necessarily be a matter of practice in the Christian life. John the baptizer, as well as the Lord Jesus, preached the necessity of repentance. They preached the gospel, they preached the kingdom, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or repent, and believe the gospel. They had the same message on this point. You can see that in Matthew 3, verse 2, and Mark 1, verse 15. They made clear that entering into the kingdom, or we might also say receiving the king, responding to the good news of the gospel, is by way of repentance. And there's no other way. Uh, the third paragraph of uh, the Westminster Confession article or chapter 15 says that although repentance may not be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ. In other words, repentance itself is not something that we perform that saves us. Yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. Repentance does not save us, but there is no saving response to the gospel without repentance. Though Christ saves us, Christ himself is believed on and received also in the way of repentance. This chapter also makes clear then that repentance uh, must be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. Preachers must proclaim salvation by faith, but they must not preach a salvation by faith that neglects the doctrine of repentance. These things must go together. It is a necessary message. It's an urgent message. We hear that in uh, Luke chapter 3 with respect to the preaching of John the Baptist. He spoke to the multitudes. It's interesting that these words were spoken to the Jewish leaders, but here in Luke, uh, it's made clear that these words were spoken to the people in general. The multitudes were addressed as brood of vipers, like you're the children of snakes. That's harsh language. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Show the reality of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Don't just trust in your covenant position apart from a genuine response to God in the way of repentance. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's an urgency to that message. Calling people to repentance. And that also means that given the necessity of repentance, it's important, isn't it, that we understand what it is. 
What does repentance really involve, according to the teaching of Scripture? You notice that question 88 of the Heidelberg Catechism refers to repentance as another word for conversion. It asks, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? It doesn't say genuine repentance and conversion, but genuine repentance or conversion, indicating that they're basically one and the same thing. So the necessity of repentance really is the same as the necessity of conversion. Or turning to God, as question 87 describes it. Sometimes that word repentance is, is, uh, spoken of as like a summary of a believing response to the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, Christ is declared as the one whom God has exalted as a prince and a savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. In other words, God has exalted Christ to give a saving response to his message by way of conversion. And that involves a turning to God expressed there with this word repentance. So repentance, uh, well, it's defined in our catechism in two parts. And uh, we might say that it involves uh, what we might describe as a negative and a positive side. On the one hand, there is the dying of the old self. And it's true, isn't it, that this this negative side is uh, what is most often associated with repentance. And it's true that in Scripture, sometimes repentance especially focuses on this negative side, as described in the Catechism, as a sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin, a hatred for sin, and turning away from it. So it involves a way of thinking about sin that involves sorrow, but it also involves action that corresponds to that view of sin as hateful. That, that, that means a turning away from it. But also there is the positive side of repentance as it's uh, described there. Well, first of all, to cite this description of repentance in terms of its negative aspect, um, I want to read from the second point of chapter 15 in the Westminster Confession. It says, By it, uh, that is, by this grace of repentance, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God. So that negative side is described also in this article in terms of a hatred for sin as odious in the sight of God, grieving for that sin and turning away from it. But then there is also the rising to life of the new self. And again, that makes, that makes clear, doesn't it? That repentance is the, the activity, the, the spiritual motion and activity of those who have become spiritually alive. Now, they may not know it, right? 
In fact, in the experience of initial repentance, when people first come to faith in Christ, when they first turn to God and call upon Him, they only might be aware of their sin. They might be afraid. They might indeed believe that God is gracious and merciful and they're, they're seeking mercy from God. But they might not be aware at the time that actually this, this is the activity of one who has become spiritually alive. Even their awakening to the reality of sin in the sight of a good and holy God. Well, that's grace at work in their lives. They might not know it at the time. But in their turning away from sin, they're showing the, the reality of new life. And in turning to God, that life is becoming active. They begin to feel and to show a new attitude towards God, towards His Christ towards his will. Answer 90 describes that in such a beautiful way. It's a wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. Now, there is the negative and the positive side of repentance in terms of defining it in biblical terms, but it's important to see that these things always go together. It's not like the negative side is first and that continues for a while and then someone might enter the positive side. Again, in experience, the negative side might be most prominent at the beginning. But we must not separate them. True repentance, even at its beginning, involves a view of God as good and it turns to God with the thought, the hope, and expectation that God is indeed gracious. They always go together. And see, this is uh, something that makes the vast difference between mere uh, remorse for sin and uh, regret and a sense of guilt for sin and genuine repentance. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he distinguishes between the sorrow of this world that is, unbelievers, who show a kind of repentance, but he says it's a repentance to be repented of. In other words, people might so, show a kind of sorrow and guilt before the reality of sin, but it's purely selfish. They simply want to escape the consequences of sin. And that kind of repentance is itself something to be repented of. That's the sorrow of the world, he says, which he contrasts with a godly sorrow of true repentance. Yeah, there is a sorrow of the world that might involve deep shame, profound regret. Sometimes you might hear it in video clips of courtroom proceedings where the guilty expresses regret and shame and remorse for their crimes as they're facing the consequences and the shame of exposure. Think of Esau who wept tears, or Judas. There can be a, a sorrow that is deep and profound, and yet a sorrow of the world. People may face the consequences of sin and the shame and the loss, the loss of health perhaps, the loss of freedom, the loss of a spouse, the loss of their position, their job. But Paul describes that kind of sorrow as a sorrow that produces death. And sometimes it literally produces death, right? Judas went out and hanged himself in despair and guilt. Quite different than Peter's repentance, 
who wept with a sense of his betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these were tears of love for one who was worthy of his devotion. People might show a sorrow and regret for sin that still involves a kind of rage against God or a rage against their circumstances or a rage against other people. But that's simply remorse and regret. Whereas repentance, repentance is before God, right? We heard that in the definition of repentance also in chapter two. It's, uh, uh, with the apprehension of, uh, of God's holy nature and the righteousness of his law. Think of David against you and you only have I sinned. Well, actually he had sinned against Uriah. He had taken his life. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had committed adultery with her, but he came to view his sin in relation to God. So there's a God centeredness to repentance. It is before God. And it is turning to God. And it includes an awakening to the mercy of God in Christ with the apprehension of his mercy. The Heidelberg Catechism describes it even in terms of joy, love, and delight. That's the kind of repentance, brothers and sisters, that is that is necessary. This knowledge of our sin before God, yes, a sorrow for sin, a change of mind, a different way of thinking about our sin than the world thinks about their sin, knowing our sin as against God and as contrary to His goodness, His holiness, and as a turning to Him away from sin, also with the apprehension of His mercy and a kind of a kind of delight, a kind of hope. And a belief in grace. There's a sweetness to genuine repentance that reflects its character as the grace of God at work. And that leads us to consider the grace of repentance. That's actually the language also of, uh, of chapter 15 where it says repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. In other words, it is it is the result of the grace of God. It is really a response to the gospel, not just a response to the law of God. Yes, the law of God brings conviction, but simply with law, there's only guilt and despair. But, but repentance is an evangelical grace. It is a gift of grace. I already quoted two passages that make that clear. Then God has granted unto the Gentiles repentance unto life. God has given it. Christ is exalted as a prince and a savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We heard the same language this morning in the, our uh, reference to Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 where he teaches Timothy his a manner of dealing with those who are in opposition. He says in humility, correcting those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now, repentance is commanded. God commands all men everywhere to repent. But you know that when that command is actually heard, when it, when it is actually heeded, it's because God has done something else besides just give his word. 
God has worked with his Holy Spirit in a gracious way. God has given new birth. God has imparted life. In that sense, we might say it's like faith, right? Faith is commanded. All people are commanded to believe. But when people believe, the deepest explanation for that is not an exercise of their free will. The deepest explanation for that is that God has granted faith to them. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That's the gift of God. And that also means, doesn't it, that, that preaching and, and witnessing must be urgent, but it ought not to be angry. It ought not to be impatient. It certainly ought not to be prayerless. Because we can't change people's hearts. We can't force repentance through terror. That's God's work. And that means prayer that must attend our preaching, our witnessing, even prayers for ourselves. That God would grant us the grace of repentance. Do you ever feel the need for that? Do you ever feel concerned that maybe your, your, uh, your view of sin and your repentance is, is too shallow? Or maybe you're covering sin and you're not really dealing with things. It seems like that's what David prays for when he says, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, if, if I'm hiding sin, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you won't hear me. So keep me from deceiving myself. Turn me and I shall be turned, right? That's a prayer of scripture. Turn me and I shall be turned. That's the recognition that even repentance itself is not some irksome work that we perform, but it's the grace that God gives to us. It's an inward working of grace. And repentance produces a graciousness of spirit, a softening of the heart, a humbling of the mind, a quieting of our restless and uh, resisting spirits. A repentant person comes to himself, right? That's, that's using the language of the prodigal son. He says he came to himself. Paul, Paul speaks of coming to one's senses. It's like getting clarity of the real issues involved. I've been in rebellion against God. My heart has been hard. I've been resisting his word. Suddenly it's clear to me. And the pathway forward is rather simple. I must turn to God. I must say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. It's a kind of surrender. It's a kind of, of, of being subdued before God. That's grace at work. Repentance is the expectation and experience of grace. Here again, those words that God would put in the very mouths of, of a rebellious and sinful people. Oh, Israel, return to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. It's like, here, I'll help you. I'll make it plain and simple. I'll even give you the words to say. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously. And we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. Well, that's a sacrifice of thankfulness, isn't it? For grace. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. In other words, they're, they're repudiating their confidence in uh, uh, other things or other persons for their security. Nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. 
You are our gods. For in you the fatherless finds mercy. You see, there's this conviction of God's mercy and graciousness that serves as a, as a, as an incentive, as something that draws them to look with expectation to God for his mercy. You know that God rejoices in a returning sinner and God is eager to make his grace known and felt. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily. That's kind of a beautiful picture of turning to God. I think it's expressed well also in uh, this this uh, hymn that proclaims the wonder of God's grace to sinners. And can it be that I should gain? Stands of force, as long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Isn't that a beautiful description of, of repentance? It's turning to God. Returning to him, a God of amazing love and grace. And from that, brothers and sisters, arise the fruit of repentance. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruits that are commensurate, that show the reality of true repentance. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And what this means is that repentance always becomes evident. It becomes evident in behavior or conduct, good works, right? That's the language of our catechism, describing repentance in terms of turning away from sin uh, to good works, because good works are the, the certain fruits of repentance. And here again, that language of, ref of fruit is important, because, because fruit is a natural product, isn't it? It's organic. It grows naturally from a tree. That is alive. Fruit is not um, pasted or somehow tied onto the branches of a tree. No, it is produced naturally from that life of that tree. Make the tree good and it's fruit good. And that means that fruit is the inevitable and the, the natural outworking of true spiritual life, of true faith. Now, that doesn't mean it's automatic, right? It doesn't mean that there is no self-denial involved, but it does mean that good works are not some forced, irksome behavior that we have to do. Well, I guess if I'm a Christian, I have to do some good things once in a while. Well, of course not. No, good works, they flow out of new life. With purpose and endeavor, the confession says, we live and walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. And that language even itself makes clear that good works are, you might say, all-inclusive, all the ways of his uh, commandments. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that any of us ever achieve perfect obedience in this life to any of God's commandments. But what it does mean is that... Uh, True repentance and true fruit is, it's not, it's not selective. 
we might put it this way. If someone gives up stealing but keeps on lying, or someone gives up adultery but keeps drinking himself drunk, if one controls his outward behavior but just lets his thoughts run free, without restraint, without any conscience before God. Such a person hasn't repented of anything, of nothing, because that repentance is not before God with respect to His will. Repentance is not selective. It doesn't pick and choose. This is also the difference, isn't it, between good works that conform to God's law and works that follow human tradition or our own opinion. When people simply follow traditions or their own opinions and select uh, how they're going to show that they're Christians on their own terms, well, then they're basically still being a law unto themselves. Repentance is a turning to God to live according not only to some, but to all of his commandments. Good works are not selective. And in that connection, we might observe also that repentance is specific and, and concrete. It means stopping uh, one thing uh, to do the opposite. Or we might say it means dealing with my own specific ways of disobedience to God. You know, in a way that's, that's uh, taught in this passage in Luke 3 where the different uh, groups of people came to John the Baptist under conviction, saying, what, what shall we do? Then John gives kind of a general direction to show love for your neighbor. If you have food and your neighbor doesn't, feed him. If you have warm clothes and your neighbor doesn't, make sure he has something warm. And he gets specific with the tax collectors. What should we do? Well, charge no more than is owed because that was the characteristic sin of tax collectors. They had the authority of the government behind them and so they would, uh, they would steal from people and take more than what was actually owed. And so they're told to repent of their characteristic sins. Soldiers, well, maybe soldiers were characterized by discontent with their wages. And John says, be content with your wages. Or maybe they were, they were characterized by being too rough, domineering, taking advantage of their power. And John addresses that, uh, specifically when he says, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. We might say that, uh, Repentance has good and good works has a certain shape for each of us uh, relative to our calling, our, our place in, in life. It has a, a certain uh, shape for husbands and for wives, for children and for parents, for workers, for students, for ministers, for elders, for deacons, for members of the church in general. What would you have me to do? Remember, that was Saul's response when the Lord Jesus Christ manifested his grace to him on the road to Damascus. He was subdued. He was made willing in the day of Christ's power. What would you have me to do? And repentance is willing to ask that question and to turn our steps in the way of God's commandments. And repentance finally is lifelong. We rightfully, we rightfully think of conversion not as a, a one-time event that we can uh, point to and perhaps name a, a day and say, that's that's when I was converted. That may be possible for some, but uh, more characteristically, conversion is something that characterizes the Christian life. 
our lives, just as they are lives of faith, are lives of repentance. Turning away from sin, turning to God every day. Every day we turn from self and sin to God. Every day we're, we're called to, to resort to our, our Savior and our, our Sanctifier. Now that doesn't mean that repentance is always the same. Sometimes we sin grievously and our repentance should be deeper than ordinary. But there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's a whole lot that is not right with those who do not practice the daily acknowledgement of their sin, who do not, in a sense, daily uh, remember and confess and pray and preach the gospel to themselves and acknowledge before God that it is his grace and his righteousness upon which we rely. It is his mercy in Christ that, that we resort to. Right? We heard that in the language of Israel. Assyria shall not save us. We're not going to rise, ride on horses. We're not going to trust in the work of our hands. And we give thanks to God for his grace to us. And we repudiate any idea that our standing with him and our acceptance with him is based upon our works. But we delight in extolling the all-sufficiency of our Savior. We delight in confessing that if he would mark our iniquities for one day, we couldn't stand. But there's forgiveness with him, and we daily resort to those fresh supplies of mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. True repentance is not some legalistic performance. True repentance always looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.